KBCS is powered by listeners just like you. Support this and other KBCS stories, interviews, and highlights by donating at our website, kbcs.fm. 91.3 KBCS. I'm Yuko Kodama. The Gang of Four, or Four Amigos, are a group of four Seattle activists from Indigenous, Black, Asian, and Latinx communities who organized and advocated for the needs of people of color and all intersections in between from the late 60s and 70s onward. Councilmember Larry Gossett is the last surviving member of the Gang of Four. He was a member of the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party, founder of the Black Student Union on the University of Washington Seattle campus, executive director at the Central Area Motivation Program, and served as King County Council member from 1994 through 2020. He reflects on the power and lasting work of the interracial coalition. He starts by naming each of the members of the Gang of Four. The first member was Roberto Maestas, who is in the broader community was known as the primary founder of El Centro de la Raza, a uh, Latino-based multiracial community service center. The second one was Bob Santos, who was born in the international district slash Chinatown. And he's Filipino. And um, he became the executive director of Caritas House, which was a Catholic youth service in around 67, 68. Then later in 70, he became the well-known executive director of the International District Improvement Association, a profoundly important community service organization in Chinatown. The third person, certainly not least, is uh, Bernie White Bear. He was the founder of United Indians of All Tribes Foundation up here. But his first coming to fame association was that as an occupier of Alcatraz, the island across from San Francisco that Native Americans found proof that they still should have been owning. And they took it over for several months. Uh, And then I was the fourth member of the Gang of Four. We are proud of the fact that we ourselves, along with help help from community writers wrote a book about 10 years ago uh, on the role and history of the Gang of Four. And that book is called The Gang of Four. And it's under the primary authorship of Bob Santos. It was in the throes of struggle that I met all four. That's an absolute truth. But I think that that was part of the foundation that kept us as friends and comrades working in the broader community. I met Roberto Maestas first. He was a Spanish teacher in 1967-68 school year at Franklin High School. And on March 29, 1968, some Black Student Union members at Franklin called me. I was a leader of the Seattle Alliance of Black Student Unions at that time, and a student myself at the University of Washington. 
and they told me we're getting ready to tear this uh, school down. Uh, so I said, don't do anything. And they have enough respect for me to be cool until we got there. So we quickly, four of us quickly got in a car and drove to uh, Franklin High School. And we didn't even start that organization until January 6, 1968. So all this was happening within a two to three month uh, period. We went down to Franklin. Suffice it to say, we were able to talk to students into instead of tearing up the school over the racism that they were feeling, come up with some demands and take over the principal's office and demand that changes occur and be unified in this effort. The students agreed and uh, they came up with four demands. Uh, they're classical and that they said, we want a black history class. We want a black, his uh, black principal. There had never been a black principal in any high school in the history of the Seattle Public Schools, which began in 1863, and this was 1980. This was 1968, 105 years. They thought that was enough to not give an opportunity to a black person to be principal at the high school level, and that they recognized the Black Student Union, and that they'd be able to put posters and images of black people on a wall along with Benjamin Franklin. So, oh, and that the students be reinstated, the two students that have been kicked out. About 125 students out of the 175 black students that attended uh, Franklin at that time participated. And by that high number, you can see that the tensions and the lack of respect of black students was felt deeply by most black students for them to consider the fact, and we talked about this before we went in, you could get kicked out, you could go to jail because there used to be a baseball stadium uh, in Seattle and in 68 it was still there, but it's only two and a half blocks from Franklin. 250 police cars had already gathered there because they'd heard that there's a rumble and that there's trouble and it's massive and it's at Franklin High School. So we told the students that they were there, but they still said we want to demonstrate. And uh, we walked over to the principal's office saying, beep, beep, ungawa, black power, um, over and over. And it scared all the students and the staff, except for one person. The only person that stayed at that sit-in was uh, Roberto Maestas. To me, because I didn't have a lot of so, racial consciousness at that time, I thought it was. I said, "Why is that white student? Why is that white teacher staying here?" And the students quickly said, "Oh, he's not white, brother Gossip. He's a, he's Mexican. He's our Spanish teacher, and he is cool." So we let Roberto stay, and I talked to him and met him. Uh, so that's what I mean. We all met in the context of struggle. The second meeting was with Bob Santos. Uh, the Black Student Union and later the United Construction Workers Association under the leadership of Tyree Scott didn't have nowhere to meet. And, and Bob Santos let both of us uh, meet at Caritas House, uh, the uh, Catholic Oriented Community Center located on, on uh, between 17th and 18th 
and um, Jefferson Street in the central area. It, it was a good, a very good place to, to meet. And um, we were excited about him letting us meet there. And then we got to discussing the cost and we loved his response because we told him we didn't have too much money. He said, well, uh, I'm Catholic. And he said, God will make a way. So we kind of liked that. And he let us start meeting there so that we could plan uh, how we garner black power in uh, uh, Seattle. The way that I met Bernie White Bear, the fourth and last of the four amigos, was that I was called uh, by some Indian brothers and sisters and said, please come out to Frank's Landing, which is out there on the Puyallup River, because the Indians are gonna uh, having problems with the state games department because they're, they are fishing and they have a treaty that they entered in 1855 that said, you can fish in these waterways for as long as the rivers flow. And uh, in 1969, uh, the rivers were still flowing, Yoko. So the Indians didn't see why they had to limit their fishing, but the games department wanted them to. So we went down to Frank's Landing and I met a new uh, native leader. They said he's, he's, he's a returning son. Uh, he's been uh, occupying Alcatraz and he just got back and he wants to be involved and he's our Indian brother, different tribe. Uh, I think uh, Bernie is a Colville. And uh, these were mostly Puyallup Indians at Frank's Landing. And we went down there and expressed solidarity, got involved. We went out on the river and fished, you know. They, the Indians found out later that I was the only person that didn't know how to swim. They said, oh, don't worry about it, Larry. We'll, we'll jump in and save you if anything happened. I say, yeah, right, nothing's gonna happen though, y'all. So we had that kind of joshing. So I think that provides a picture for you as to how we all met one another. And that's what I meant by in the bowels of struggle. Uh, that's how we met, formed a, we weren't thinking about being a united front. We were just talking about multiracial unity around struggles that impact our respective peoples. Now, these kind of things happen a lot where, you know, you meet different people as you're working through these struggles. What is it about this gang of four, this set of four people that was the glue that bound you so, so tightly? Well, we were all uh, from national minority groups in the United States. We all came together here in the great Pacific North uh, West. Uh, but I think that the glue is more associated with my description of how we came to together because we would joke a lot about it. We came together as a result of struggle, uh, trying to improve the condition of our respective peoples. And uh, we said that is important to do. And the more we did it, we found that it enhanced the power, either individually of one minority group or all four of us together. And that was, if I can use your word, that was the glue uh, that cemented our unity 
in the early days, the 60s and early uh, 70s. And then as we struggled together uh, and sometimes went together at, at a, as a foursome, we saw that it made a difference. I'll give you one example. Uh, we've been talking about 68 to 70, but in 1980, this cat by the name of Ronald Reagan uh, got uh, elected president of the United States. And the four of us already all throughout the 70s worked together. Um, and we can go back to that later, but I just want to give you this example from uh, January of 1981. Uh, Reagan won the election and became president. And the first thing he did was uh, said, I have a desire to eliminate the Federal Anti-Poverty Agency. OEO, have you ever heard of OEO, Office of Economic Opportunity? Yeah, that provided funding to four programs. By 81, uh, my sister Yoko, I was the executive director of CAMP, the Central Area Motivation Program. And uh, uh, El Centro de la Raza, and the Chinese Information and Service Center were both funded through CAMP. They were delegate agencies. So we gave them a little piece of the federal anti-poverty money that we got. And then I informed them that, that, that Reagan had sent out a letter saying they were gonna defund us, not at the end of the year, uh, but right now. And they were gonna lower our the federal commitment of funds from $446,000 a year that they had sent a letter. They sent a letter saying in, in fiscal year 1981, you shall receive 446. But when Reagan got in office at the end of February, we got a letter saying that had been reduced to 42,000 total. Uh, the camp board of directors, uh, under Mike Williams uh, was the chair that year. They said, oh, no, 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 we're not going for that. We're gonna go down to the local regional office and get our money. And we said, okay. So I called uh, Bob Santos and Roberto Massas. And they said, yeah, we'll be down. We'll, we'll bring some people. Uh, Roberto was particularly incensed. And we said, we'll involve uh, Bernie too. And on the day that we were going down, camp had 150 black recipients of services from us, you know, energy assistance, food, you know, from our food bank, or were participants in our youth program, something that tied them to camp. And all these people came out. We were absolutely ecstatic when Roberto, I don't know how they got the buses, bought 100 Mexicans from El Centro, not 10, 100. And Bob bought about 20 Asians and Bernie bought about eight or nine uh, native brothers and sisters. And they all knew because we met in the camp uh, conference room and said that, okay, what we're gonna do could get you in jail, could get you arrested but it's the only way that we can see with this new conservative racist president that we were gonna get the money that they had already promised us. 
us. And I showed them the letter where we had been promised 446,000. And the people, I really like this. All the people were in the blacks kind of like the, the, the Latinos speaking uh, Spanish and three or four, the Asians that Bob brought speaking Chinese. They said, right on with this. This is definitely all the people. So we went downtown to the Region 10 office of the Community Service Administration or OEO, I can't remember the name, but we went down there. Suffice it to say, when they saw that multiracial unity, it blew their mind and it was 300, 300, almost 300 people. They were nervous. The white administrators never had seen anything like that in Spanish and, and in English and in Chinese. Uh, we told them we wasn't leaving until we got our money, and we were loud, and we were unified, and we were spirited, and the regional director didn't know what to do, uh, but what he did do after he went in the room, made a couple phone calls, is come back out with a check for 446000 We had our letter with us. That was the original amount. I'm telling you, Yoko. There is no way that if just Roberto, Bob, and Bernie and I had gone down as four uh, respected community leaders, that they have jived us around and said, oh, this is bad. I see the letter. Let me look into it, and we'll see what we can do. And it probably would have got increased to 69000 or something like that. But it would not have been the whole amount. We mobilize people power. And those kind of situations is what uh, binded the four of us together because we had differences. I mean, we were a united front. Roberto and I were more, you know, intellectuals and graduates of colleges. And Bernie and Bob were more uh, street, organizational and experimentally really bright, they didn't think about concepts around socialism, stuff like that. But despite that, we all got together. Well, we had some large, but not real big uh, political differences. But the thing that binded us was the dis disadvantaged nature of so many people in our respective ethnic groups that we had already seen clearly that if we have unity, we have more power. By 1980, we had been in jail a couple of times together. Once we were in a Thurston County jail for the Indian fishing rights. And another time, all of us supported uh, Tyree Scott, 1969-70, uh, closing down construction sites. All of us went out to the airport, went out on the place where the planes fly in, and we stood out there and said, we're going to stop the flights until Blacks are hired as construction workers on the building of the new parking lot. That parking lot was built in 6970. And that's why we were out there. And all this helped make a difference. And it was multiracial and hard for them to divide us like they used to do. So that's an example. We had many of the same women that started with us in the 80s, Ruth Ann and Marie Carose, the Black women that got involved with us at camp, Annie Jones, 
and the Latino women, Stella Ortega and Teresa Juarez came together to wrestle for Pujarara, where there's a core group of 30 or 40 people that always work together across racial lines today. I see them calling one another sometimes when there's issues because the revolution hasn't taken place. We still have a need for this, these kind of coalitions to be built. It's not enough of it that goes on today as compared to the mid to late 70s and the 80s. And that's unfortunate. But we have models to draw from because of the kind of conversation that you and I are having on radio this morning. During the late 70s and the early 80s, a lot of public monies were going away and we had to look alternative sources. And the biggest source that we had not really thought about until 1980, and we moved on it in 81, was United Way. By then we had United Indians of All Tribes Foundation. We had International District Improvement Association. We had the El Centro de la Raza. In 79, I became the executive director of the Central Area Motivation Program the oldest anti-poverty agency in Seattle. And it still in 81 was serving a predominantly black inner city, low income, impoverished community. And I already told you in 81, Reagan was the president. So we had some problems. And the four of us got together and said, we got to impact United Way. And with United Way, we did do it the way Earlier, I told you we wouldn't make any progress in doing, uh, but it's different circumstances, different contexts. United Way had not recently told one of us, all the money y'all getting, you ain't gonna get anymore. We were trying to get into the system. So the four of us went down and had a meeting with the United Way president of King County and his staffers. And we, by the next year, all four of our agencies were getting more funding from United Way than any beginning organization had heretofore gotten when they first started. You see what I'm saying? And we all four got it. Usually a lot of funding sources would fund one or two of us and say, oh, we're giving all this money to camp. Whenever we see a break, we'll try to give y'all a little bit, you know, which created sometimes divisions and jealousies and envy and, you know, not a basis for talking about solidarity. We had the solidarity, we went there, we articulated to the leadership of United Way how we've been working together. We, they knew that Reagan was in office. We told them about what we had done down at the regional office of OEO and, uh, they worked it out where the next year all four of us were getting funding. I would submit to you that there's no way we'd have got that much money if just Camp and El Central went down there by themselves or Bob Santos and Bernie Whitebeard had gone down there individually. The four of us wouldn't have gotten what we started getting all four at the same time and none of us had been United Way agencies before that. That's that kind of stuff I'm impressed with. I was impressed with the fact that 1977, when Charlie Royer got elected mayor of Seattle, first thing he said was without the support of MOVE, 
I would not have been the new mayor of Seattle because they mobilized the minority community in Central and Southeast Seattle in such a way that I would not have been able to do it campaigning against Paul Shell uh, as I was for the mayorship of Seattle in 1977. And I will attribute to Move was making an organization that Bob, Roberto, Bernie and I started with Ruth Ann Carose and a lot of other Asian and Latino persons, both men and women, making our votes effective was an electoral group of all minorities, all third world people. Doug Chen was involved in our group. Mike Williams said we need a we we could impact who's going to become the mayor of Seattle. And we talked about how we could do it. And then we did it. Ruth Ann Carose got this before she worked for, went to Washington, D.C. to work for the House of Representatives. She and Kathy Halley worked for MOVE. Uh, and then they worked for the, the mayor. Uh, Gregory Johnson started working for the mayor. He had been part of our effort. Mike Williams and Larry Gossett started working for the mayor. We were both put into the Department of Community Development to work at right as right-hand persons to Daryl Roadhouse, who was the director that Royer put over the Department of Community Development. So you see that intersection there, how that how that worked. Uh, so those are a couple of examples of things that I'm very fond of that we were able to do as a result of the of the third world or multiracial unity that was created by the gang of four. What were some of the most difficult moments or, you know, frightening moments in your work as the gang of four? There were times like down on the Indian reservation on Frank's Landing when uh, we had no experience of dealing with Thurston County police officers. They didn't. And they are like acted like they could just because we were natives or supporters of natives that they could talk crazy anyway to us. And I remember Roberto Maestas and Tyree Scott in particular. And Bernie with his natural way of being funny and charismatic. Uh, would get on the nerves of the police and they talk kind of crazy to us, like ending lies and stuff like that. Uh, but but it ended up being dealt with, taken to jail and, and, and being dealt with. Then later, we got excited over being primarily responsible for helping Jesse Jackson win 40% of the Democratic vote in 1988. Yeah, you could check this out. Most of the states were not able to build that kind of a coalition in the Democratic Party. But what people thought was particular about the Rainbow Coalition is that there's only 3% Black people in the entire state of Washington. And we got 40% of the vote. They said, that's unbelievable. And Jesse, uh, Jackson and his right-hand person, Ron Daniels, talked about how amazed they were that we were able to do that, mostly through the multiracial 
organizing around electoral political uh, strategies. It really got hard in 88, 89, when Jesse said that we want to restructure the rainbow, make it a more national organization. We didn't mind that, but he wanted to do it. And what some of us thought, yeah, because we had the vision, uh, was a undemocratic fashion. We want, we liked the way we all of us having a vote and the national priorities and not having a national board of 20, 25 people make all decisions and the rest of us follow on. Uh, so we had a split in our organization around that. It caused a split between me and Roberto because he wanted to support Jesse. And I said, this is crazy. This is, we actually got stopped talking for about a, a year or two. It was, it was tough. Those kind of things bothered me. We got back together by 93, some, somewhere in there. But those things that led, led to splits amongst the, the four of us are in the Minorities Act Directors Coalition, having a split where we're, those are examples of some tough, difficult situations that we had. They got worked through because the gang of four as a leadership group, we were together until the three uh, other members died. Bernie Whitebeard died in 2002. Um, Roberto Maestas in two, 2010. Bob Santos in 2017. So those were, you know, those were tough times. But I, we still worked together until the end. The only one standing now is Larry Gossett, and you're talking to him. But I'm confident that there'll be others who'll pick up the mantle after I'm gone and talk about what we had in Seattle and what we have now and how we learn from them. At least that's what I hope occurs. Thank you for sharing about uh, the the group of the four of you and and also, you know, my my condolences as well. I mean, the, the yeah. four of you were so close. And yeah. Of course, you know, um, we are all human and there are going to be divisions of, you know, differences in opinion that is going to bring about schisms that are really helpful. When you look back, what's an impact of your work as a gang of four that you didn't expect? I had not uh, expected our unity, our togetherness, our coalescing around political and economic problems impacting a part of all the minority communities to be able to be sustained because I didn't see any examples of where that had happened before. So I was pleasantly surprised that we were able to overcome those kinds of differences and keep the coalition building going up here in this regional, which I still uh, give credit to the manner in which we came together through struggle and not just through personal friendships. But because we had, we came together through struggle and we developed personal friendships and camaraderie and we weren't real doctrinaire. Really hard to put together left coalition sometimes when you say everybody has to be a nationalist or everybody 
has to adhere to the leadership of the Blacks and all this kind of stuff, it's hard to keep the unity and the coalescing and sustain the struggle when those things happen. But we weren't, we never allowed ourselves to get real doctrinaire. You know, I told you earlier, we don't all have to be socialists or democratic socialists or black nationalists be, to be together around broad principles uh, like racial equality and unity and empowerment, regardless of ethnic background or economic status. We showed that you, we, you can build united fronts with a lot of different folks if you just agree and develop some uh, working relationships that for different reasons sustain themselves, it can be done. Whereas in other locales and communities, it was not able to be sustained. So I, I, I appreciate that. You've also alluded that this is a really rare phenomena, this kind of coalition building that lasts for decades and decades. I know it was rare. I knew it was rare because we talked about the fact that where can we learn about how multiracial, political, or community-wide movements are developed and sustained. And then we had ourselves or other people do research on it in the 70s. And when we were building in 1970, maybe it was 70, 71, we, we started something else central called the Third World Coalition. So we said, let's study how multiracial formations have gotten together and sustained themselves. We found some in the Third World, but we didn't find many efforts where it was sustained. A little bit, we found that under the Black Panther Party in Chicago, when the concept of the rainbow, it was started not by Jesse Jackson. It was started by a young man that Jesse Jackson uh, learned from. He was Fred Hampton, the leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, who was brutally murdered when he was only 20, uh, one years, uh, 21 years and two months old by the state, the prosecuting attorney and uh, Chicago police and others got together and killed Fred. But he had been successful at building unity amongst Latinos, Puerto Ricans, poor whites and poor blacks in Chicago. And that's hard to that, that's hard to do on a daily. Daily was the mayor, and he w- worked hard at keeping those groups divided from one another. And Fred Hampton over in, and the Black Panther Party overcame that and built the unity. There's been a movie made on it. So we, we, we studied those kinds of uh, things that didn't get sustained. When he was murdered, it fell apart. In the movie, they talk about why they thought that that had happened. Hadn't been together long enough. He's only 21. Uh, to to resist the police and FBI attacks. He was the head of the Black Panthers by the time he was 19 and a half and then murdered when he was 21. There's no telling what he, around that Rainbow Coalition concept, would have been able to build. Fred was killed in 69. Jesse Jackson coined the phrase, we thought he had coined it, 
I learned later that he gotten it from Fred Hampton. That's a lot of years, 69 to 83, before it created and got a national presence. So yeah, we looked at other movements and we talked a little bit, but not a lot about we want to sustain it. Mostly we say we want to keep the unity because it works. It makes it a difference for the political, cultural influence of our peoples that we are unified. And that kept us together. And we did we just never let doctrinariness or something like that get in our way. And I thought that that was, that was good. Listening to your stories, and I'm thinking of these nonprofit organizations that are so busy and maxed out with issues. I could see how these nonprofits are like working so hard on their particular things that if someone comes to them and says, can you help out with this issue that we're having right now, we need 400 people there to make an impact, to make a statement. And then I can see how nonprofits would be like, I wish I had the time to go and help out. I, you know, I believe in your cause too, but I cannot do that because we've got this and this and this going on. How is it that the four of you were able to find the time for all of this when you have, each of you are working on such significant projects within your communities? Because we were early on leaders and saw the success we had of working together on some issues starting in 68, 69, 70. I, I need to throw Tyree Scott in there because he really uh, talked a lot about multiracial unity. He's a working class electrician. He got really into philosophical studies about radical community organizing, democratic socialism, all that stuff. And he read on his own and then shared that with us. I think that we got involved and saw the results of working together so early on in our relationships. And we didn't call ourselves the Gang of Four or the Four Amigos that came later, 83, 84. So we just said, oh my God, look at the advantages that we've had of working together, having more people, more influence over things that's happening in our respective community. So then when we called each other and said something going down, we almost felt we couldn't just say, no, we need to do a little something, but we'd say, we, we know a little something, that's it. And then when we have to call them a year later, they would be willing to do. If you're not used to working together, it makes it a little more difficult, I could say. And no matter how busy we were, I found that we would carve out some time to work together. That, that's a hard lesson to teach. And I don't really remember us ever teaching it to one another, just abiding by it and not wanting to let the other persons in our coalition down that we did it. And then when we had the formal coalition, like the Minority Executive Director Coalition, we met twice a month. So we talked about these things. And then everybody in the room would see the interconnectedness and want to stay involved. But absent that, where you just call on one another to support a cause, that's not really enough. You have to have a regional or national structure that some of you are involved in 
where you talk, you have political education about what needs to be done to sustain the efforts that we have going now. That's necessary. It's hard to do it without it. We even saw that the social and cultural stuff was important. The Asian community theater called us once and said, we want y'all to do a skit where all four of you are involved. And we think that we'll, that'll add to the number of people that have come to our fundraising event. And the four of us became, I think it was Annie Galarosa that suggested it. We became Gladys Knight in the pits. Four of us and Annie Galarosa. And the theater went wild, and we practiced. We didn't have time to be practicing dancing, but none of us wanted to say we ain't showing up. And if one of us didn't show up, people get mad. And they would say, this is serious. We got to be ready. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Um, it, 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 look at the book, The Gang of Four. They got a picture in there of us, four of us dancing and, and, and Annie singing. That's hilarious. And, and that kind of brings me to also among us younger generation that grew up in, I wouldn't say in your shadow. It was like growing up in your arms, yeah. seeing each of you at the uh, pig roasts. And, yeah, yeah. and then you're just all kind of joking around, goofing around. And, and then there's the bush garden, you know, that's the place where you all hang out. And so there's, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So there's kind of a culture. It's yeah. not that you guys were doing business all the time, you know, right. I mean, you're doing business, but it was kind of like, it was a lifestyle and everyone goes to bush gardens and, and you know, can see you guys. And, you know, there's just a, a thing around this. So could you talk about this? Because I feel like this is also part of what, made this so successful is the informality, the kinship, the family-ship that we would feel. Yeah, you have to have, yeah, when you're building political life, you have to have some social, cultural relations. It really helps have it integrated. There was a time, a couple of years, where every Friday, no matter what, we told one another, we would be the Mexican tavern that Roberto told us about, El Gato Loco on 14th and Pike, and we just somehow between seven and nine, every Friday night, we would drop in there and, you know, talk about things that's going on and drink beer, or I drank, uh, I think that's where I learned about something called Shirley Temple, that's all I ever drank, and uh, just kick it, have fun, and other people would come in with us sometimes. Yeah, that makes a difference. Oh, my God. Every Friday, at least three of us was there. Yeah, so you guys hung out. There was fun to be had. There was relationship building. Just I, I feel like that that's a huge part that you have passed on to the younger generation. They grew up in that, too. So, so you went into public office. Uh, mm -hmm. You were talking about Ruthann Carose working at the city. And some other people yeah, yeah. had taken on, you know, jobs within jurisdictions. And these are the very jurisdictions that you might have had complaints about, you know, uh, before. And how does working in a jurisdiction then affect your perspective and how you work? Because 
when you're out on the street and you're just, you know, you and you have a nonprofit organization responsibility over your community in that way is so different than when you're in a public office and there's certain things that we might not be able to say, right? Uh, someone in that position can say and knowing so many things and knowing so many people and you're in a different role. How does that affect also very powerful because you can make decisions that have more impact in a lot of ways, but yeah, I understand what you mean because in going on to the King County Council in 93 and community organizing in order to bring policy changes was something I've been involved in for 30 years. So I was pretty successful when I needed a lot of people in the audience when we needed some you know, some resistance. One day, I think in early years, the county executive said, I want to charge prisoners for being in jail so we can use that money to defray the cost of operating the King County Jail. And this is called, he wanted to impose a new legal financial obligation on inmates, the poorest people in our community in general. The average prisoner has $6, this is 2004. The average prisoner only has $6.04 on their person when they come into jail. This new ordinance would charge them $100 every time they come to jail. It's called a booking fee. And they were gonna impose on every prisoner that came in there. Budget committee had already passed it 7-0. This is back in the days when there were 13 members on the county council. And we had a protocol that we adhered to, thank God, at the King County Council. And that is if any one council member says, I'm not ready to vote on this issue because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what's coming up today. And I'd like for a week's courtesy relay. And we always give a week's delay. Like with other council members, they gave me a week's delay. And in that week, I was able to get about 104 or five uh, brothers and sisters who had been in the King County Jail to talk about what it would be like if they had to pay $100 next time they go in there. And first of all, all of them said they couldn't do it. They didn't have no money. And some used cuss words, you know. Man, y'all talking about? I don't have no money to be paying to get jail in a hotel. Oh, it was, it was really, and my colleagues had never heard people talking like this. They don't get that class of people that come down to the county council, but it was dramatic and it had an impact. So that 7-0 vote recommending that we adopt this new policy turned into an eight to five defeat when we took it up the next Monday. It would have passed absolutely, my dear, had we voted on it when it was first brought up to the county council. Because I didn't, I didn't know this was happening. No organizing had been done. I got 110 people to come down there, many of whom had never been to a county council meeting because I wanted the class of people most affected to be there. That a lot of them, you know, you got two minutes. Uh, and they didn't know you're supposed to say council member. And they say, hey, hey, what's up with all this going on, man? You know, it was good. It had an impact. Here's why. All six Democrats voted for it. 
and two Republican women changed, who were on the budget committee, both of them, changed their minds. That had an impact. We had men and women testify, but they had an impact on what they said. And they had an impact on what I said that day. I had my staff, Alexis Harris, she's now has her doctorate in political science, but she was an intern of mine then. She went downstairs and just came upstairs and said, $388 million is owed by county residents right now in legal financial obligations. These are amounts that imposed when they had to go to court for various things, not paying child support or domestic violence or whatever it was. They can't, they, they couldn't pay it then, they still hadn't paid it. It had accumulated the 384. So you're gonna add a new legal financial obligation and most people that go to King County Jail cannot possibly pay. It doesn't make any sense, I told them. And I had all those statistics that I just shared with you, 300. That's the first time I ever thought to go down to the clerk's office and ask how much is owed. Nobody asked that, but I did in terms of the way I'd been organizing the past. I knew that would make a difference. So those, the testimony, the new information I brought caused the vote to be eight to five. If I weren't there or we'd have voted the first time it came out, wouldn't have, wouldn't have passed. You see, I, yeah. I think those two Republican women, they had to change their vote from the committee. And they knew that the other five members of the Republican caucus, all men, would get on them. But they joined forces and voted with me, and we defeated it. Yeah. That was Council Member Larry Gossett, the last surviving member of the Gang of Four, a group of community organizers who were committed to advocating for their respective communities and building a multiracial coalition to fight for social issues. Councilmember Gossett, who was the former executive director of the Central Area Motivation Program and King County Council member from 1994 through 2020, founded the Minority Executive Directors Coalition with the Gang of Four and co-founded the Third World Coalition. I'm Yuko Kadama.